90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Freezing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, man, it was 92 degrees yesterday, and um, yeah, it was 54 degrees today. Yeah, it's been quite a change across a lot of the country. Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, love a good, well, we'll get there. Um, there. (laughs) Yeah, so you've been busy. (laughs) I have. So we were uh, on site at a a customer's lab installing some equipment last week, and I was hoping that we would have time to record in the evening, but that didn't materialize. It's not like you're going out and, you know, living it up at bars like you usually do on these service calls, right? So I don't understand why not. Exactly. There was no, uh, so we were in Philadelphia, there was no dine-in eating anywhere. Uh, so it was pretty much, you know, live on Uber Eats and food trucks. Yep. I mean. Uh, which was not fantastic for me health-wise for a week. <laughs> I was just going to say that just sounds like my normal week, so I don't really understand, but okay. <laughs> I should not have that easy access to five guys. <laughs> just lay in your hotel room and they'll bring it right to your door. Exactly. <laughs> it's unbelievable, right? Yeah. <laughs> so any other service calls anyone needs him to go on? <laughs> John's ready. <laughs> but no, it was great. We uh, we went and installed a lot of precision uh, measurement, electrical and software and hardware that we have written for this lab. And we're actually going to have the PI on to talk about what they do because it's very fascinating. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so it, it was fun. It was basically a big ice squeezing machine. And I'll leave it at that. Ooh. Ice is a mineral. I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> Ice is a mineral and does weird things at hundreds of megapascals. Oh, that's awesome. You and your glacial people, man. And we did a bunch of... This was the first time uh, that... Now that it's done and works, I can say this. Uh, <laughs> this is the first time we had done cryogenic control systems. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So we, they use liquid nitrogen to yeah. cool this. Yeah. And if you can imagine, you've got your pressure vessel with your experiment in it inside a tank of an alcohol or something, you know, a, a heat transfer fluid. Mm-hmm. And in that is a copper coil that you run liquid nitrogen through. It sounds pretty straightforward, but when you're trying to control the temperature of the thing to <laughs> plus or minus half a degree... There's, you know, if you run liquid nitrogen too long, the coil gets too cold and you just start dumping liquid nitrogen out the other end, which is a waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a huge time delay from when you pulse liquid nitrogen through the coil to when it goes through the fluid to the vessel to the experiment. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so it was a challenging problem. But was... we were able, I think by the time we left, we had it to plus or minus two tenths. Oh, nice. Yeah. Look at you overperforming. <laughs> that's that, that's what we like to do. But it was uh, it was an interesting experience, and also you know when the software freezes, uh, which is is funny in the context of what we were doing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, but but when the software freezes and you've got a a stuck liquid nitrogen valve, like that's pretty good incentive to debug quickly. Uh yes yes. <laughs> I mean liquid nitrogen is fairly cheap, but still. 
It's relatively cheap, yeah, but we don't want to get the whole system too cold. Correct. Um, (laughs) You don't want that spewing everywhere. Right, and also it just takes a long time to warm up where we can do another test with it if we get it to, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 200K and then takes a while to warm back up. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds super cool. I can't wait to hear about it in practice. It was very fun. Uh, And while I was doing that, I also brushed up on my Audacity skills. Wow, really? Yeah, so... <laughs> how, how is that? <laughs> so I always give you a hard time about making sure you have the right mic selected. And uh, last oh, week, yes. I selected the right output source, but not the right input source. Uh, and uh, uh, my audio did not sound stellar, though I will give my laptop credit. It did not sound as bad as I expected it to. <laughs> I love this because clearly I make this mistake all the time. And like a little child, every time John is like, what's your microphone set at? <laughs> <laughs> so I got to do it this week and it was immensely satisfying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a bummer for us that you had bad quality. That's what I meant. <laughs> So um, now that I've got the right audio selected and pretty much everybody <laughs> is back in school and things are to whatever normal they're going to be for now. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, you suggested that we wrap up summer shorts. I'm not really sure we actually had any shorts. <laughs> I was going to pledge to make this one our only shorts <laughs> for the summer. I mean, we're in climatological fall now. Um, AKA pumpkin spice latte season. And so <laughs> we should probably at least stop the pretense of having shorter episodes. But really, uh, my thoughts about this episode were I heard a couple of words that you don't hear used a lot. And I thought hmm, maybe somebody else wonders what these are. So there we go. Right. And so you mentioned that we've had massive temperature changes. I know Denver had like 90 to 30. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think. And snow. Uh, as this front came through, the front is, uh, I'll have to pull up a map momentarily, but it was about a county away from me when I was having dinner earlier. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. I see. I eagerly awaited it yesterday. Um, I kept checking the surface obs over and over and over again and was sad when it stalled out a little bit. But Yeah, that's what this morning was like for me. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So... We're going to talk about frontal passages and all of the weird and wonderful things that happen with them and a bunch of words that sound like they're made up. (laughs) Um, Including what we call frontal passages in our vernacular is fro-pause, not the faux-pas that you made with your microphone, John. (laughs) Right, but a fro-pas. And you'll see this in Uh, forecast discussions uh, relatively often, normally written in all caps. Correct. Um, yes. So it just stands for frontal passage. Um, but it just Back we... from the days when, you know, the characters actually made a huge difference and the <laughs> abbreviation uh, was necessary for teletype, but we're still doing it because tradition. Exactly. Hey, we got away from the tradition of all caps. I mean, which was mostly sad and weird. Yeah. It, I will say it's still sad a little bit for me, but that's okay. Um, yeah, so we had this massive faux last night, <laughs> and it's great, and we got all this weird rain, but the rain's sort of in a different location, if you will, in the frontal system, but I thought we'd just sort of talk about fronts in general 
first because I mean these things happen they have to like start somewhere right and I think another made up word (laughs) which is frontogenesis and that's just the process of like making a front whether it's a cold front or warm front both of which are defined by um, a very sharp temperature gradient over a small distance with an asterisk of you know yeah you can decide what very sharp is. Yes. Uh, I've true. definitely heard people say things like frontish when <laughs> looking at maps. <laughs> uh, if, if you want to sound official and you're really not quite sure what's going on, we just call it a boundary. Mm. Oh, there you go. That is. Yep. That's the good cover your, your rear end word for that. Exactly. You're like, well, I'm not really sure if it's a front yet, so I'm just going to call it a boundary. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it doesn't even have to be temperature. It could be be wind. It could be whatever. Yeah, Um, that is true. So, yeah, fronts, of course, come from the military history of meteorology of two clashing different forces, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Cold air and warmer. we've talked about something called the Norwegian cyclone model way back. (laughs) So I thought that we must have done that. Um, I almost dressed as that for Halloween once when I worked at the Severe Storms Lab. <laughs> I will say. Of course. <laughs> um, I chose instead to, <laughs> this is even more appropriate, I wore a gray t-shirt and I made glycerin ice cubes and I put them all over the front of my shirt. So it was a cold front. <laughs> there you go. Uh, the next year I went as a, that same shirt, I painted a black line down it, and I carried an empty beer bottle, which you could never do <laughs> anymore. No. And, and I was a dry line. <laughs> <laughs> I won a, a trophy with a horse's rear end on it. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> it was like my most prized trophy. <laughs> so. Um, go right. ahead. <laughs> Uh, the Norwegian cyclone model is more than we're going to go into here. But if you want to know more about cyclogenesis or how low pressure systems form and move, that's something worth taking a listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, so you get these fronts, and there is this thing called the frontogenetic equation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it is fun. This thing is a beast. <laughs> It is. There's nothing in it that's that complicated. There's just it's a really lot in not. it. Yes, exactly. It's just over and over again. You've got to take in all these dimensions, right? Directions right. I mean, you've got stuff winds and temperature gradients and pressure gradients. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. It's a lot. It's the most math I've seen in a Wikipedia article in a while, too. <laughs> it's true. And all it was is just writing the definition. Exactly. <laughs> um, but so we have this parameter that we can use that shows where fronts are developing or where they're expected to develop. It's a little more complicated than just saying, well, what's the temperature gradient's rate of change or the temperature gradient gradient, Uh which we'll we'll stop the calc there. Please. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a little more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. But that's fundamentally what we're looking at is where do we expect these temperature gradients to tighten up? Um, One important thing to know before we go into how these fronts work and where the brain is is that fundamentally air parcels move along constant isentropic surfaces oh 
I love this. <laughs> this uh-huh. is also one of my favorite things. And it sounds very complicated and it blows your mind until it doesn't. Um, I've actually never heard anyone explain this as well as you did the last time we talked about this. Um, yes. Well, so I appreciate that. I don't know if I'm going to duplicate that explanation. Well, uh, now now the pressure is on. <laughs> Literally, the pressure is on. <laughs> so uh, isentropic surfaces are surfaces where the potential temperature of an air parcel is constant. And you say, okay, what's the potential temperature? Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual temperature of air doesn't really tell you anything. I remember being very general. upset when <laughs> when learning that, really. <laughs> Right. So really what we care about when we're looking at fluid flow is density gradients. Mm-hmm. Right. And temperature does affect density, but so does pressure. Correct. So do lots of other things. Moisture yes. content. Uh, you know, m- the more moist air is, the less dense it is, which is counterintuitive, but clouds float. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> y- you've got all of these contributing factors if you're trying to solve where's the air going to go, or you can just calculate what's called potential temperature. Mm-hmm. Okay. And potential temperature on an isentropic surface is a conserved quantity, meaning it's constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine you had a parcel of air and it hits the Rockies and goes up through our favorite method. Yay, or a graphic lift. Right. So it hits this topographic surface, it goes up, it's going to expand. Yes. And cool. Yes. Then it's going to come down the other side. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get compressed and warm. Yes. So the temperature, the pressure, and the density of that parcel are constantly changing as it goes over the Rockies. Mm-hmm. Correct. The potential temperature never changes. It is constant. The okay. only thing that's going to change the potential temperature is energy coming into or going out of the system, of the like system. solar radiation, condensation, things like that. Okay. Makes All right. sense. So fundamentally, we want to know what's the potential temperature, and that tells us how the air is going to move. Now, on the surface, with these fronts, it's manifest as a change in real temperature. We only care about that because the surface is where we're stuck most of the time. Right. Yeah, Exactly. All right. So we won't go into the math of potential temperature. You can look it up. It's really not that bad. You take it an air parcel and you bring it down to 1,000 hectopascals, and there you go. Go from there. Mm-hmm. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, Shannon, what's a cold front look like? <laughs> I just told you. <laughs> what do, you uh, do you want it in cross-section? What do you want? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so if you're looking at... These cold fronts, they're very, um, it's like a sharp cliff that you don't want to jump off of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's very steep, right? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a natural flow, like, I guess a really uh, dense mud flow is what it looks like. Oh, um, yeah, like the toe of yeah. a, a mud flow. I think that would be good. Yeah, that could be good. Um, or, like, if you pour... I'm going back to pancake syrup, man. It's my favorite. I knew you were going to go syrup. <laughs> yeah, it's like that edge where it's kind of um, rounded, I guess, along that edge. But that interface right at that front is a pretty steep um, 
That's how I always envision it. It's a pretty steep angle, I guess. The cold air is coming in like a big bulldozer of pancake syrup. <laughs> well, and that angle is going to be influenced by the density contrast, right? Yes. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. And pancake syrup is more dense than air. Yeah. So there Hence you go. why it goes across the pancakes and down. Mm-hmm. So, yep. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So, there's your cold front and we're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, I picked this. I picked this topic, but I just assumed you would do it also. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's a cold front, right? And then stuff happens at these fronts. And it feels like, it doesn't feel like, we're here in the middle of North America, right? And so different things can happen with these cold fronts and you have to deal with the severe weather. We have severe weather season in the spring and in the fall and it always looks different like this time there wasn't a lot of severe weather with this huge frontal passage um but there well there wasn't a lot of severe weather but there was a lot of winter weather that came with it because this cold front was really deep but there was this (sighs) and that shows where you got your meteorology degree because you don't call (laughs) winter weather severe weather exactly um um you can chase tornadoes or shovel snow at penn state you decide (laughs) so we had a t-shirt that said that i was we had a t-shirt that said that when i was an undergrad (laughs) we know penn state's always above us in the ratings it's fine (laughs) that was lovely that i got to use that (laughs) Yes, but continue. Yeah, really wish I still had that t-shirt. Anyway, so there was a lot of winter weather along with it, but there was this word that kept getting thrown out um, along with this cold frontal passage, so this fropa that we just had, which was anafront, anafrontal precipitation. Yeah, and this is, it's an interesting (laughs) distinction. I don't know that most of the time it's an important distinction yes that's i don't remember really discussing this at all but i I, saw it in two discussions in two different weather service offices from two different people obviously and i thought that was that was weird yeah so I, i vaguely remember talking about it uh but there's this idea do you remember talking about the the warm air conveyor belt yes absolutely Right. So there's this idea. It came from a paper in the mid-80s by Browning, Mm -hmm. uh, where when you have a cold front, you get warm air moving uh, perpendicular to the direction of propagation. Right. So imagining this front coming in in this perpendicular flow. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, say your front's moving west to east, Mm -hmm. then you're going to have flow in our hemisphere, south to north yes. of warm air. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Got to yep. put that asterisk in there, but yes. Correct. <laughs> All right. So that is advecting, or the meteorologist word for moving. <laughs> <laughs> so pretentious. <laughs> that is advecting that warm, moist air, not only up over the cold front, because as you've talked about before, it's this big density bulldozer coming in. Mm-hmm. But it's also moving it northward. And the angle that it's moving it northward and how that relates to the cold front and even the warm front is important. Right. 
And that is fundamentally the distinction between these two. Right. Yeah. So it's important because that's where you're going to get your precipitation, right? So you kind of know where that's going to go. Um, I was thinking about that whole seasonality of it because, you know, you've got that that little wedge between the cold and the warm front. And so when that warm front's coming in, you get all your precipitation in between that area. Um, And that's the opposite of flowing along it. And that's... (laughs) This is so weird. I just don't remember talking about these catafronts. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so the point is, where is your air flowing with respect to that front? And then that's where you can look at where you're going to get precipitation. Because in this case, we've had, we didn't, just to the uh, just to the west of us, um, they had like six inches. <laughs> Yeah. And that's nuts. And it's all this anafrontal precipitation. And so the difference between those two, I mean, we've talked talk about catabatic winds and all that. This is all coming from those same prefixes. Ana is the Greek, and it means upward and backward. Okay. So this anafront has um, warm air ascending the frontal surface up to really high altitudes. Okay. So you'll get precip behind the front. And catafrontal is down or against. That's what the Greek kata means. And so this is usually a cold front where the warm air descends the frontal surface. um, And you can see where you're going to get your precipitation relative to that. I just just didn't remember talking about this much in terms of those words. (laughs) Yes, like, you know, an anafront, imagine you've got your cold air bulldozer coming along. The warm air turns and follows that surface up until it gets to high altitudes where it eventually starts flowing back, let's say eastward for the sake of argument. Right. Okay. Versus your catafront where the warm air hits the front of this cold air bulldozer and basically does a 180. Yeah. Like bounces off of it essentially. And starts going back the other direction. So we're obviously talking about density gradients Mm -hmm. and that density is driven again by temperature and humidity. Mm -hmm. So think isentropes. Yep. And this leads to this being what we would call one of my favorite meteorological things. Oh, no. A baroclinic phenomena. (laughs) And as I explained the last time you talked about baroclinicity, what I remember about this is my BFF in meteorology, Val, who sat there and drew a bear getting a Band-Aid put on it (laughs) and running into the baroclinic... (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Okay. That's yeah. what we did instead of paying attention to the actual uh, <laughs> lecture. Because <laughs> Barotropic was him laying on a lounge chair with a little umbrella drink in his hand. <laughs> yeah, so Barotropic is a lot easier to understand <laughs> flow. It's where you don't worry about temperature and pressure at the same time. Yeah, much easier. Much easier. In Baroclinicity, we are worried about temperature and pressure because guess what? We have a huge contrast and it's causing wacky flow that is not going where you would expect it to based on just the pressure gradient alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you can, you need to forecast that stuff. So you need to understand where it's going to go. Yeah. Right. And so both of these fronts way back into the front, you have precipitation in the cold air. Right. But in the anafront, you have precipitation just at and ahead of the front, as well as behind the head of the front. 
Correct. And depending on the shape of those air masses, you can get it fairly far behind the front. Um, and it's like we still we've had rain all day today, you know, and it's been 50 degrees since last night. So. Right. So and you can also imagine that post frontal precipitation is in an anafront is going to be uh, different character, especially if you're on the edge for winter weather because it's falling through the cold air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Exactly. Which is why we had such large uh, snowfall totals throughout right i mean not oklahoma but <laughs> throughout colorado uh associated with this front i mean think they picked up a lot of snow they did and after 90 degree days and you know i'm <sighs> looking at the radar right now and it's very fascinating because so we know and i'm, I'm going to pull up this map i know this is thrilling live radio <laughs> uh, so the front was on its way to me, and it's basically just now hitting where I live. I'm looking at the air temperature map, and the front is oriented pretty much north-south with a little bit of an eastward tilt across eastern Oklahoma, just now coming into northwestern Arkansas. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and it's been moving east very slowly all day. Mm-hmm. If I look at the radar, what do I see? I see precipitation from me all the way back to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And that precipitation's moving north. North, exactly. And it's, it's the vast majority of that band, uh, not the most intense, but the largest aerial extent is still west of Oklahoma City. Right, and a lot of that precipitation, actually, well, nigh all that precipitation is pretty much behind the front because the front is at my location right now and I am not seeing precipitation yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at the diagrams for anaphora, it's exactly what you expect. Ex- exactly. We were um, on purpose playing outside last night because I wanted to I wanted to be there when the fro pa went in because I'm a nerd like that. And so it's like we're outside and we're all in our shorts and t-shirts, you know. And all of a sudden my daughter's like, it's really cold. <laughs> And, you know, we got this northerly wind shift and it's like we didn't get rain. I mean, that was probably eight o'clock. And, you know, we didn't get rain until well into this morning. So, yeah, it was it was very interesting situation. And I'm looking at my weather station right now because I'm also that nerd. (laughs) Uh, I don't really see much of a temperature signature yet. Uh, but the wind in the last three obs has picked up and has pretty much almost 180 shifted now. Oh, there you go. So the front is literally, as we're recording this, just arriving. <laughs> Hang on to your seats, everybody. <laughs> right. I will, I will be updating you. So it is, uh, it's currently 76.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, my Lord. It is. Uh, and 80% humidity. Uh, no, it is 50, 50 degrees here, and it's right. been below 55 since, yeah, noon, I guess. I mean, our high today was 87. Oh, no. We, so, we barely scratched 55. Before the end of Fun Paper Friday, this is going to be different. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's really fun. I like this, um, this super exciting... <laughs> 
chasing this ridiculously slow moving front. <laughs> right. But I really like it because it lines up exactly with what you expect from theory. Mm-hmm. Right. So as boring as it is to those that aren't interested in the entire <laughs> phenomena, this is a textbook Text and a front. Book. Exactly. And that's why, so this is funny because the person I was teaching with this afternoon, um, she always likes to, we teach a climate class together, right? So I have to put on my meteorologist hat for this. And um, she always ribs me about the weather. And she came in and she had on her chacos. And she was like, I couldn't find my cold weather shoes. That's why I'm late. And I said, you know, I had this nailed, this forecast nailed down the past couple of days very precisely. So that's on you. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you had two days to prepare your shoes. <laughs> so, yeah, it was very textbook. It was lovely. And if you want to know some more about this, so the, the Browning paper that I referenced is called Conceptual Models of Precipitation Systems. I actually really like that paper. It is. It's, it's in Meteorology Magazine. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's very interesting. Like, it's the, yeah. Um. Yes, I I, and I think it's really easy to understand. It is. Um, and if you want the... Well, so Louis Ussolini also has some papers from back in the 80s and 90s on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. And if you want the rigorous mathematical treatment, <laughs> I, I'm going to come right out and say it. Uh, synoptic Dynamic Meteorology in Mid-Latitudes, <sighs> yep. uh, which is Howie Bluestein's book. It's in the, the second volume mm -hmm. of that book. Uh, has a really nice treatment of this as well. It is indeed rigorous. But yes, it's very... I mean, <laughs> you're in volume two on somewhere in the neighborhood of page 600 when uh, you get to this topic. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's very good. I remember that Howie had to teach that class, <laughs> that mesoscale class. Um, it wasn't my year. It was the year right before me. And they... Yes, that was a group of well-trained and very upset meteorologist <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah it was pretty funny but well and shannon do you have anything else to say about fronts before yeah. we move on i only wanted to define anafrontal and talk about its shape that was all i my goal was with this <laughs> all right well but I we do definitely expanded that <laughs> yes exactly i do enjoy enjoy your um baroclinic and barotropic diversions <laughs> Absolutely. Well, with that, it's time to go on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Um, you sent two papers, so I actually don't even know what we're going to talk about now. <laughs> oh, well, fun. So I, I, uh, I did send you a couple papers because I was preparing for the next couple shows. And uh, I just read the one that you responded to. Oh, I was afraid of that because I read twice the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I respond to that one? Because it was about Paleo Mag. <laughs> it's true. I figured you'd be really excited about this one, actually. Um, I was, and I will say the most exciting part of this um, little EO summary is that this guy's lab is described as being in a forest. <laughs> this is a journalist painting... <laughs> Far too vivid of a picture. I love it. 
of this magnetically shielded lab in an isolated forest outside of Munich. When it could be in the middle of Munich, it wouldn't matter. It makes it sound like it's some crackpot with like a still out back. (laughs) Yes. But I mean, he has a paleomagnetist, so. It's true. There's probably a little bit of crackpotism going on. That's... (laughs) So, uh, this is actually a study that is a lot more in-depth, but in the same vein, a study that one of your good friends did. Mm Mm-hmm. So, this is a more in-depth analysis of a paper that Joe Kirschfink did in 1992. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. uh, Where he he put brains in a magnetometer. (laughs) I love it. Gosh, he's so crazy. Makes right. Me, makes me so happy. <laughs> so we know that animals, salmon, birds, have magnetite mm-hmm. in their brain, and it helps them orient and swim or fly in the right direction. Yes. So he was curious, do humans have much magnetite in our brain? Oh. And the simplest way to find out is, of course, to get your hands on some brain and stick it in your super-cooled contu- super uh, quantum interference device magnetometer. In the forest somewhere. In the forest. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So now, uh, obviously, we, we do, right, which isn't, like, the coolest part of this. Um, did, we did a fun paper on here, though. Where, I mean, this isn't anything, just like you said, I mean, Kirschfink did it in the early 90s. This isn't anything super new. Um, But didn't we do that paper on here where they took people out and blindfolded them? Yes, this is a real paper. (laughs) And, like, asked them to, like, basically point their way home. And then they took people out and put the magnet on top of their heads, put a magnet in the opposite direction of Earth's magnetic field on their foreheads, and those people couldn't. We have definitely not read that paper on here. We haven't. Oh, okay. Well, spoiler alert. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So if you do that, I mean, this wasn't like a hugely statistically significant paper, but it did show that the people who had the magnet taped to their head in the opposing direction of Earth's magnetic field, they couldn't orient themselves when blindfolded correctly to their home as other people could that didn't have the magnets. Fascinating. So Yeah, so so you didn't have to kill all those people and put them in the magnetometer. (laughs) Right. Uh, So Stuart Gilder is the PI on this study, and he's at uh, Munich University. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so they took uh, pieces from seven brains, and they sliced them into lots of little pieces and tried to see how much magnetic mineral there was in each piece to not just say, oh, yeah, we have some or we have none, but how much do we have where? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the where part was the really interesting part of this. It was, and I was surprised. Like, Okay, I'm not surprised that we have it. No, I'm not either. At all. I was very surprised that it's concentrated, like, by a factor of two in the brain stem. Yeah. So the ancient part of the brain has ancient magnetization, which is so cool. Now, I will say I was, I felt for you as a paleomagnetist <laughs> at the EOS interpretation of how this oh. study happened. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Because I feel like it was very poorly explained. Um, yes. Yes, I concur. And it's also not the typical method that we use to demagnetize rocks, <laughs> as is stated. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the exact. Are you on the exact part? I'm trying to. Uh, no, I'm not on the exact it, part, but it's uh. Pull it up. Basically, what they did with this is they would measure the chunk of brain, and then they stuck the chunk of brain in a really strong electromagnet to align whatever magnetic minerals there are. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't randomly cancel each other out. Right. And then they measured it again to try to see how much magnetic mineral there is. Right. Which is not at all what we do in traditional paleomagnetics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, correct. You're correct. I understand why because, you know, yeah, you wanted to keep it all aligned and everything. And, I mean, we do, uh, you could do a sort of similar thing with rock magnetics. I also thought that was interesting how they kept sort of talking about it being paleomagnetics because this is definitely something that we would call rock magnetics, which is two separate things. Um, right, so paleomagnetics, you're trying to get the ancient magnetic fields from the rock. But rock magnetics, right. you're just interested in how magnetic is it. Right, yeah. Is it there and how much of it is there and how much of it is, yeah. Exactly. And what so, is it? Right. And yeah, which one is it? Is it hematite, magnetite, or whatever? So that was kind of interesting, too. <laughs> the three minerals you have to know to be a paleo. Correct. Yes. It's the best thing ever, man. <laughs> I I had to do a mineral lecture yesterday, and I was like, I'm sorry, everyone. This is my least favorite lecture. <laughs> I was like, I have to know two chemical formulas, and they just have iron and oxygen. That's it. So. <laughs> hematite magnetite and other things that end in ite yeah mm-hmm. no not even that just hematite and magnetite really gertite yeah. maybe gertite was the one i was thinking of for the okay third, yeah. and it's hard to say because there's no r but you say it with an r so <laughs> gothite is the uninitiated would say oh, gothite you're exactly right um yeah so i thought the coolest part about this was i was not surprised at this and i don't think that's a new thing, and it's surprising, but where it's at is very surprising. Yes, and I also found it fascinating that... So these brains had been preserved since the 90s. <laughs> so weird. Um, I guess the other parts of the bodies were used for studies, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know if there's just not a huge demand for brains. You would think there would be, right? But... But I can't imagine there is. I mean, this. I'm not saying this is not a valuable study, but to give seven brains to somebody to cut up. Man, we're paleomagnetists. We mess stuff up all the time. Right. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. They made a really nice map. Uh, and they said that really between all of the brains, it wasn't much different. Male, female, age-wise. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, that's probably the advantage of having a large number of brains is to figure that out. And, you know, Joe Kirschfink, they asked him about this study. (laughs) Uh Um, He said it confirms the biological origin of brain magnetite. And he said it was very similar to his research, but with 100 times more data. (laughs) Oh, that man's insane. And this was uh, shown as an abstract at AGU 2019 at the fall meeting. Mm-hmm. And I do not believe that there is a peer-reviewed paper out yet. Yeah, I was looking. This. I was looking to find stuff, and I didn't 
Um, I didn't find anything either. So, so there's some science press on it, and then there's Joe Kirschfink's article, uh, right. which is great to go read. Uh, yes. It's short. It's relatively to the point. Uh, and I will have that full citation for you here in just a second. Um, and it's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if there are any. So they worked with, um, you know, a group of medical doctors. Like this is how it how it happened was, you know, his next door neighbor was a, a doctor and they started talking about this stuff. Um, I wonder how many students, PMAG students, got involved with these samples. Because I would imagine that would be kind of jarring, right? <laughs> yeah. To be like, oh, usually we just look at these rocks. <laughs> so the Kirschwink paper is uh, Magnetite Biomineralization in the Human Brain from Proceedings of the National Academies of Science in 92. There you go. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there you go. So next time you're trying to find your way home, <laughs> just listen to the base of your brain. That's right. Don't tape a magnet on your forehead. Do not tape a magnet on your forehead. Maybe you have to get out of your car and do that thing with your phone, like where you walk in figure eights. <laughs> All right. Uh, I got a new phone. I just had to do that the other day. I, I wasn't embarrassed because I never get embarrassed, but it was really funny. <laughs> it's like when they had you set up the facial ID in the in the oh. Apple store for the first time and you're rolling your head ah, around. Ah, ah, ah. I refused just for that reason. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Hey, look at this, John. It's an actual summer short, our last one. <laughs> it's true. It's under an hour, so we're going to call that short. If you have data on the magnetite mineralization in your brainstem or any other data you'd like to share with us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Um, you can find us on the Slack channel, the Software Underground, and the Don't Panic channel. Um, you can also support this podcast on Patreon. You can find us, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even though canaries volunteer for coal mine duty whenever they hear us say it, <laughs> don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.